Hello and welcome to the Hindu In Focus podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan in Chennai, your host for today. The coronavirus outbreak has posed huge political and economic challenges to China, where it first began. Questions have been asked, even within China, of the Communist Party's handling of the initial phase of the outbreak. Although China's massive national response post-January 20th coupled with the spread of the outbreak, particularly to the United States, has been framed by the party as underlining the strength of the Chinese system. How convincing is the party narrative? And what has COVID-19 meant for Xi Jinping and the party leadership? What do we make of some of the unusual public criticism of Xi, most notably by the well-known real estate tycoon Ren Zhiqiang, who penned a searing essay criticizing his leadership? which we've linked to below this podcast. Helping us make sense of this very unusual political time in China is Richard McGregor, Senior Fellow at the Lowy Institute in Sydney. Richard is a long-time foreign correspondent in China, reporting for more than a decade for the Australian as well as for the Financial Times. His book, The Party, The Secret World of China's Communist Rulers, is a must-read for anyone following Chinese politics. We also look at what COVID-19 has done to an already fraught US-China relationship and whether the backlash to Chinese investment, including in India, is here to stay. Richard McGregor, thank you so much for joining the Hindus In Focus podcast. Thank you. Richard, you've been following China for so many years now. Uh, you've written the best book there is on the Communist Party. So where would you think COVID-19 ranks in terms of the challenges that Xi Jinping has faced as well as the party as well? Is this the biggest crisis since Tiananmen? Well, every challenge looks like the biggest crisis since whenever, when it happens. But I would say the answer to that is yes. Um, Certainly the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009 was a big challenge for China, but they got through that through a massive stimulus program. I think this Uh, time is a little bit different. We've not only got what is going to be an extended economic downturn, uh, this can't be turned around by a sort of wave of infrastructure spending. So we've really got the probably the longest downturn since post-Tiananmen or maybe since the late 70s. Plus, we've got a sort of global political crisis or global political fight uh, over the origins of the virus and responsibility and accountable, accountability for it. So now while China's, you know, is a much bigger economy, a much more powerful country, um, that doesn't mean that uh, it can sail through something like this. And so they're fighting on a number of fronts. Before we come to the economic challenges, uh, which, as you hinted, is one big front, if we can take a look at the black box that's uh, China's politics, Initially, the narrative seemed to be that uh, Party Central was saying this was a problem at the local level in Wuhan and Hubei. Subsequently, it's being framed as a vindication of of the Chinese political system. How convincing would you think this narrative has been, especially if we look at its reception domestically within China? Well, it's just absolutely amazing. Can you imagine six weeks ago, even a month ago, that China would be heralding its handling of this crisis as a vindication for their system. But that's where we are these days. You know, we should say, of course, that in some respects, 
that sort of uh, propaganda is as much directed internally as it is externally. We shouldn't forget that. But I think the China's handling of this crisis is really shows the the deep weaknesses and also some of the strengths of their system. So let me explain that. You know, first of all, um, there's absolutely no doubt that China mishandled the early stages of this crisis. Now we don't quite know. E- exactly what happened. There was certainly a cover-up at some levels. There was a bureaucratic mess fighting between the localities and the centre. There are all sorts of things happening. And that, I think, was a shows China's weaknesses. In other words, uh, lack of openness, lack of transparency, uh, endemic bureaucratic uh, problems, a fear of offending and reporting to the centre and the like. Now, once China started to take it seriously, and we should emphasize we're kind of in early days uh, still, um, we did see a quite remarkable demonstration of the power of the party state. When you think what they managed to do uh, in a short period of time, no discussion like we have in messy democracies, you know, Mm -hmm. they locked down in residential uh, in residences, up to 700 uh, million people. They mobilised the army. They mobilised the paramilitary. Uh, they commandeered businesses to, um, uh, you know, make for the state um, personal protective equipment. Um, they shut factories. They shut businesses and the like. Uh, so, the, you know, we did see a, a real a display of what the state in China can do and on its own uh, terms, it was effective. You know, I don't believe every Chinese figure to the T, but there's no doubt that we've got rapidly declining infections in China and large parts of the company, yeah, country, relatively speaking, getting back to normal. So we saw the good side and the bad side of the Chinese system. In terms of the man who sits at the very top of that system, President Xi Jinping, it's quite interesting that the party has, since February, been keen to show that he was very much involved at the center of everything, which struck some people as strange given the huge missteps that we saw in December. They have said that he's been involved since at least January 7th. Do you think it's a risk for them to put Xi front and center, or do you think there's a reason why they've been keen to do that? Well, the narrative of Xi in charge of this crisis has got some holes in it, maybe deliberately at different times. Certainly in the rewriting that's going on now, in the successes of this, uh, they're all down to Xi, Xi Jinping thought, and his focus on the, cent- cent- on the central, strong central uh, power of the party. But if you go back a little bit, um, the fact that he was, in theory, ordered that this be handled in January 7, that only came out much, much later. And that would be a strange thing to take credit for because you know, we had no reporting of cases from early January to January 16. Clearly, the, the, the issue was not being handled then. And I think that sort of came out in almost a moment of panic in China to show that she had been on top of this from the start. Certainly, once he did focus on it on January 20, when he was basically behind the Wuhan lockdown, um, the system was mobilized. Uh, that's true. Um, uh, but at, at the same time, um, you know, it, it might be good internal propaganda if China is successful and they can portray China as successful compared to other countries. They've got enough control of the media uh, to do that. But externally, I don't see um, many, too many countries um, 
at taking Xi as a kind of great leader and a magician for the role he played here, because clearly the system didn't work at the start. There's one other point, of course, as well. Uh, one reason, perhaps, certainly there's speculation about this in China, that the center didn't focus on this until January 20, was in the, the three days beforehand, she was on a state visit to Myanmar. And uh, people around him might have thought they couldn't upset that with talk about the problems of a new coronavirus. So in some respects, the, you know, the, the system didn't jump into action uh, until she was back from overseas. And that might mean that there's another two or three days, uh, important days lost uh, to fighting the virus. Before we come to the external dimensions of the challenge that China faces, we've seen a couple of curious internal developments as well. It's hard to make sense of what goes on at the best of times. But one of those was this fascinating essay written by the unlikely uh, person, the real estate tycoon, Ren Zhixiang. And it really seems to have made a big impact, at least in some circles in China. We now know that Ren Zhixiang is being investigated. What did you make of that essay? Did it surprise you? And would you say that it could perhaps reflect a broader sentiment among at least some elite sections in China? I think it certainly does reflect a broader sentiment among some of the Chinese elite, which is very anti-Xi or critical of Xi. You know, we've known that for some time. It's not surprising given what a tough, remorseless leader that Xi has been, both in terms of the anti-corruption campaign and crushing any opposition generally. Uh, Mr. Ren, you know, is an interesting character. I've met him and interviewed him many years ago. He's always been outspoken. He was, of course, most outspoken many years ago on um, issues of real estate. Uh, he was a fierce opponent of the government investing in public housing, rather saying that it, such issues of uh, property issues, real estate issues, should be left to the private sector. Um, and he's generally been a, a kind of a force for the um, in favour of more untrammeled markets in China, which of course is another reason uh, why he wouldn't like Xi, who's been lent towards the state side. Uh, he's also, of course, I think, um, against the cult of Xi, and that came through in the essay that he wrote. Um, but having said that, it's interesting. Certainly, Ren got into trouble, but he doesn't seem to have gotten to as much trouble as you might have thought. I think he was suspended from the Communist Party just for a year. He wasn't expelled altogether. And I th he might be in some form of home detention now. But it, it, was, it was really telling. It was a brave essay. It was eloquent. Uh, I think it reflected many of the concerns that a lot of people in China, the technocrats and the light, uh, what they dislike about Xi. Uh, and, of course, the party has put a lid on it um, without sort of um, um, ejecting him from public life uh, forever and a day. Richard, we also had... Sun Lijun, the vice minister of public security, placed under investigation by the party. This was somewhat puzzling as it was just in February that Sun was sent to Wuhan to help with the recovery in the city. You've closely followed how the party's very secretive Central Commission for Discipline Inspection works. Isn't it the case that they usually take a long time to prepare such cases before proceeding? Does that make it highly unusual, this move against Sun Lijun? Yes, that is an odd case. Um, as you say, the uh, investigations by the Communist Party's anti-corruption watchdog often do take a long time. Um, they often sort of 
proceed from previous investigations. In other words, when other people um, have been investigated, uh, they're interrogated, and they usually give up um, um, people they've worked with or they're expected to confess, not just only on themselves, but on others as well. Um, so we don't quite know whether this was um, at the end of a lengthy period of investigation or whether it happened suddenly. Certainly, when people, um, uh, before people are detained, they often drift out of the centre of public life for a few months beforehand, before things catch up with them. Uh, but in this case, as you say, Mr. Sun had been actively involved uh, in Wuhan, and then suddenly he was disappeared. So this is a, uh, another case of the, where the lack of transparency in China leaves us scratching our head. Richard, if we can look a little bit at the broader global challenge that China is facing, I think it's fair to say that its image has taken something of a beating, yet it's also one of the countries to emerge first out of this crisis. I know we're still right in the middle of all of this, but would you say it's likely that China is going to emerge stronger out of COVID-19 relative to, say, the US and other countries, or do you think that it's put China in a worse off position? You know, it's really hard to say. Um, I think amongst many Western countries, they're going to be in a worse off position. Um, the US-China relationship continues to break down at a rapid pace. Uh, China's relations, I think, with a lot of European countries, France, Germany, Britain, uh, has been strained by this, um, partly because of the issue we discussed earlier, the lack of transparency, and partly because of uh, a distaste at um, what many people see as China's efforts to exploit um, of the turnaround in their country uh, and gain sort of a propaganda or PR win from it. Uh, it's kind of too early to tell. I think one of the big issues is, yes, China's economy is starting to steady, but it's by no means in recovery mode. And we've got to see how much they can come back. There's a lot of problems hidden amongst and under the surface in China. And once growth slows dramatically, they'll come to the surface. The authorities have got lots of firepower, but nonetheless, they just can't click their fingers like they did in 2008 to get out of this. Uh, it's also going to depend on what happens in the US with Trump and the US election, and whether the US economy and the US political system can right itself. That's another uh, unknown. Uh, it's also going to depend, I think, on countries surrounding China immediately, like uh, Japan, South Korea, and of course, India. But without some sort of open accounting of what happened in Wuhan, which China is resisting, uh, it's hard to see how they come out of this with their reputation enhanced. They might be just as powerful, but it's going to be an even more abrasive um, uh, power than it is at the moment. Looking at China-US relations, which were already on a decline before COVID-19 happened, We've had one Chinese scholar, Wang Jisoo, make an interesting claim that he thinks the decoupling is now irreversible. Would you agree with him? I'm not so sure. I mean, political decoupling might be. Economic decoupling or trade decoupling is another matter because the two countries and global systems generally are so enmeshed, you can't, it's very difficult to unwind them. Um, so you're certainly going to see it happen in some areas in the manufacture of drugs, antibiotics. India has an interest in that. You're going to see some of it in terms of manufacturing 
you know, personal protective equipment, medical supplies, but that's really not a big deal at the end of the day. Uh, but do you see the sort of globalization unwinding as some people assert uh, will happen? I think it's too early to call that yet. Um, there's going to be uh, a lot of countries hedging their bets with China, but you know China's logistical strengths, uh, its industrial clusters, um, its ports, its railways, in other words, the ability to trade and do business are immensely powerful. You can't simply replicate that in other countries. Um, and business at the end of the day, <coughs> particularly coming out of the trough uh, following this crisis, um, governments aren't going to be able to subsidise too many businesses for too long. So I'm, I'm a bit cautious to overstate that at the moment. Lastly, Richard, if we could uh, bring the discussion closer to home, I think you must have seen that on April 17th, India amended its FDI rules pretty much just to tighten restrictions on China. And it's quite rare that India passes country-specific investment regulations. Do you see other countries taking similar steps? And do you think this backlash against Chinese investment is something that is temporary? Or do you think it could be something more long-lasting? No, I think it's more long-lasting. Actually, um, a week or so before India did that, Australia did something similar. But without mentioning China by name, Australia sort of said that any foreign investment proposals, usually there's a threshold by which the government, at which the government doesn't look at them, but they basically said anything has to be looked at. And that was basically aimed at China as well, even if they didn't say so. Uh, there's little doubt that the US, um, the climate for China investing in the US uh, is not going to get better soon. Europe in recent years has gradually been trying to put up more regulatory barriers to particular purchases of Chinese tech equipment. Uh, the UK is trying to handle a similar case um, right now. So I think you know we're going to see ongoing Chinese investment in countries in Africa, perhaps in resources, perhaps in Brazil, Argentina, um, and the like, which aren't so sensitive about it. But generally, the <clears throat> The sort of boom in outward Chinese FDI, which we saw in 2015, 16 and the like, uh, I think that's over for the moment. There's going to be many, many more barriers. Um, they might matter to much, as much to China as they did um, a few years ago because China <coughs> itself has um, advanced far along the sort of uh, industrial, uh, up the industrial chain itself. But yes, I think this is a, a permanent feature of the landscape for the moment. Richard, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's such a pleasure listening to you as always. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on.